Hello and welcome to the Research Connection Podcast, the show that brings current expertise and cutting-edge research and connects it with users in the community. Nothing big in the media about hockey. (laughs) It's like no news in the media about hockey. Yeah, welcome. I'm Michelle Lamb. I'm the co-host together with Jackie. Uh, I'm the director of BU Cares. Cares is the Center for Aboriginal and Rural Education Studies. Jackie. And I am Jackie Kirk, and I'm the chair of leadership and educational administration <laughs> in the faculty. And um, grew up in small town Saskatchewan, and grew up in a hockey town, and I you know, have sort of watched that culture with my family for many years. So I'm interested in talking about it with you today. Mm-hmm. And do you okay, want to so both introduce go yourselves? Sure. Okay. Uh, my name is Paul Manzik. I'm a grade four teacher here in Brennan. I grew up in the culture of hockey. You know, I've been in the dress room for pretty much forever. So it's kind of where I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tim Skews. I'm on faculty at Brand University. Um, some of my research is taking a look at um, how the game of hockey uh, provides an image and shapes young boys and men, but what it is to be a boy and a man. And you both still play hockey too, right? Right. And uh, that's how you met? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I okay. still play and I coach. Okay. Excellent. So it seems a little bit serendipitous that today is the day that we had scheduled to talk about it because the first headline that I read in my news feed this morning was mutiny long overdue in messed up world of hockey. (laughs) Um, So then that takes us to the story that's coming out about Bill Peters and about the young player who has reported him and the people who have backed that player up and corroborated his story. I think it starts out with Don Cherry and the Remembrance Day statements and... I think probably Mike Babcock, there's a whole bunch of the Sutters, I don't know, there's a whole bunch of people that are sort of involved in that. Is that part of the culture? And is that part of masculinity? Is that a sort of a, maybe a dysfunctional way that our society has enacted masculinity? And I'm just interested in how you're thinking about that and how you're feeling about that and what that has to do with your research, really, Tim. So go ahead and take over. Well, I've interviewed current pros and then former pros. And one of the things that undergirds all of their statements is somehow at some point in their lives, in their hockey lives and beyond, they said they lived in fear. And one poignant story was this former Calgary Flame. They just finished playing in Calgary and they're on their way to L.A. And he said one of the first things he would do when they're in transit to another city is he would look at the lineup and said, who is in the lineup that's going to quote-unquote cave my face in? tonight or tomorrow night. Then he'd recline in his chair in the plane, have a couple beer and some sleeping pills. So this is a 10-year vet talking about living in fear. And I think when you take a look at, at that, I think there's a certain trauma that men live through. And one of the things he would also say is, well, who am I going to tell? So I think this is certain caughtness that you get caught in a narrative of saying, I need to be that particular man. And it's a very narrowly defined image. I would say a toxic masculinity or a hyper-masculine male, that you need to live up to something. And men would say, Mm -hmm. I was fearful. What was I to do? And then can men express that fear anywhere? One of the things I found interesting is the 10 players that I interviewed, every one of them had said that. Hmm. And 
it, it's hard to do it justice, but when they start dropping the F-bombs, I was effing fearful. I was effing this. It was almost, it felt like it was cathartic. Mm, right. I've had this pent up for so long and right. something's got to effing stop. Like, mm-hmm. It was that kind of intensity. Right. And I wish I could have the interviews that were, you could see yeah. them and not just transcripts. And as a player, was that something that you related to? Well, as a as a player, I think there was always when you're going into a to a game or you knew what was coming up, you're looking at the schedule and stuff like that. You always knew that there was a potential for something, right? And uh, I know in my experience, we used to laugh at whenever we had games coming up, we'd say, "Oh well, someone's got the king flu because they didn't want to play against the kings because you knew something was going to happen." So we always kind of made yeah. backhanded jokes about it because that's what it was like. Yeah, you were trepidatious or anxious but you know your question earlier did you ever talk no mm-hmm. absolutely not no way like only if you wanted to be chased out of the dressing room or mm-hmm. you know stuff like that there's something i'm kind of piggybacking on that that men would often say or talk about is it's getting your man card right so part of me being a man is to have my teammates back and that and i think this by implication it was always physical we're not there to support them. Oh, how are you doing today? It's, <laughs> I'm going to have your back. And almost every athlete that I interviewed, that was prominent. Have your back in terms of If someone's going to run you, mm-hmm. if someone's going to cheap shot you, I'm there. Yeah. And okay. even though they would go at length talk about being living in fear, mm-hmm. we seldom was there systemic critique mm-hmm. about, maybe we ought not to be doing that. It's, I need to live up to that. But that that's a very powerful narrative. If you don't question the very thing you're in, mm-hmm. and you think you lack, if you don't live up to that, well, and you, and you did that without question too. If they're your teammate, mm-hmm. that's just it. Like it's that bond that you mm-hmm. create in the dressing room. There was you know situations or circumstances when I played. I'm not a big guy, but you know at times I was called to drop the gloves in defense of somebody else, and like I knew I was about to get punched out. You know I wasn't going to be able to wear a hat for a little while, but you still did it. Because mm-hmm. that's what you do, and that's what was expected of you. Not so much written, but it's, you know, the unwritten, I guess, code mm-hmm. of the dressing room. Is it the trauma? Like, trauma creates bonds, and so you kind of I don't know if you'd, I don't know if you'd call it trauma. I think you call it more of a common experience. Mm-hmm. Like, you're just kind of, with hockey players, you tend to, you know, you, you live at the rink. Mm-hmm. Those are the guys that you're with. You know, they become your, your social circle. Mm-hmm. You know, and anybody outside is viewed with, you know, maybe some a little bit of distrust, right? Mm-hmm. So you just... You just did it. You know, afterwards you, you know, laughed about it. Yeah. And, you know, further about policy, I think there's policing tactics that go on that keep men in line with the narrative. So there's shaming publicly about bodies. I mean, you name it, you can be shamed for it. And oh, so yeah. you, you create this sense of isolation. Like, okay, I need to take this on if you're not going yeah. to do this. So we police each other. Come on, suck it up. And it's femophobia, like you don't want to be feminine. The last thing you want to be is feminine or mm-hmm. perceived to be. So there's this certain um, wardrobe, metaphorically, that you kind of have to wear mm-hmm. in the presence of other men. And each man would know, going out on the ice, who on that ice is potentially... Exactly. Right? Who's, who you need to worry about. Yeah. And it's throughout mm-hmm. the league, usually, man. And I, I think the, the higher the level of hockey, the more intense the alpha experiences for players if you're just playing a house league hockey or, or recreational hockey just for the fun of the game then there isn't a whole lot of although i suppose there can be to some extent but the higher the level you get the more you're expected to be that alpha the higher the level the bigger the stakes you know the more alphas you're going to encounter this is a question i have for you paul because i think one of the one of these moments too when you when someone says something you're caught with it when you're in an interview 
and it was this current professional playing in the NHL. So by the time I was eight, I knew what it was to put the fear of God into another player. So I'm wondering, being a coach, um, <laughs> not that you would necessarily coach that. Do you see that ethos within phantom hockey? Phantom, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, phantom hockey. I, I absolutely. When we talk to our players, you know, with our pre-ice, our pre-game, you know, in between periods, on the bench, our language is take the body, finish them. Doesn't mean you know destroy them, but absolutely taking the body. All right. So yeah, we encourage that to some extent, and you know, you say that. And, it happened to me just recently where I couldn't figure out why our team kept taking penalties after penalties after penalties. They, they were penalties that were aggression. And it took me about half a year to figure out that it wasn't them per se, but it was a language that I was using. Because I would, what we used is, um, you got to hit them, you got to hit them, you got to hit them. And then later on, I got to thinking, well, a lot of our penalties are because of overly aggressive play, where we're um, finishing checks and stuff like that. And then I got to thinking, like we need to change that language. We still want them to play the body, but no longer do I use um, step up and finish them because that I think upon reflection I was sending the wrong message because that's not what I wanted. But that is the language that I learned growing mm-hmm. up. You know, finish them. Right. Um, that's what they thought I wanted. Right. But it was only upon further reflection with my other coaches and conversation I was like, ooh, you know, maybe <laughs> our language is causing this. You know, we need to change. Do kids, do kids have the sense of conflict? Like at school, it's like treat everyone respectfully. You can't have any, you know, not even a hint of any violence. And then you go to the rink and it's like, finish them, do this. You know, do kids feel that conflict? Just if I could just sure. one step back from yeah, that. Yeah. But one of the things that I found really interesting too is, is much of the research that says that young boys and men do not want to willingly engage in overly aggressive play. So it's not something that men say, sign me up for that. I really want to go and fight someone tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So these young and bo- young boys and men who do that, you think, isn't that interesting? There's a paradox or a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Much of what you say that in outside of that life, it's not acceptable. Mm-hmm. But we wear a certain, you know, we dress it up differently when we mm-hmm. go into a rank. But even there, they, this research does not support overly aggressive play. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when I hear NHL commentary saying they don't have their legs tonight, they're not being physical, I'm going, could you imagine trying to manufacture that level of aggression night mm-hmm. in and night out? So it, it just gives me a different perspective on when men, quote-unquote, don't have their legs. Um, I know at school, you know, we absolutely, it's just as you said, you know, use your words and be kind, <laughs> be kind to everyone and yeah. stuff like that. Don't finish them. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah exactly. So. You know, as a, as a you know, as a teacher mm-hmm. and as a coach, you know, I've kind of got my f- foot in both worlds. Right. Mm-hmm. Like at school, you know, everything needs to be. We need to get along, and we need to be respectful and everything like that. But at the rink, you know, ultimately, there the boys are there to win. If they're not driven for that, then the level I coach is probably not the right for you know right form for them. And so I'm kind of stuck between. I think if my players saw me at school, they'd see someone quite uh-huh, a, bit a different, different side. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, and I don't know, again, it'd be interesting to hear what Paula says, but the, the image of what it is to be a boy and a man within hockey is a fairly narrow, right? So it's not like we're bringing in a wide, inclusive mate of what it is. Mm. There is a fairly narrow set of tracks that we we are conditioned into, or not we, but young boys and men. I, I think you're right. I mean, I don't think anybody can picture a hockey player and not have a mental image, you know, immediately pop into their head. And... 
Yeah, you know, our players, you know, they meet some of those um, stereotypes. Absolutely, they do. And one of the things I think, hockey's it's turned out this way. It's a possibility the way men play this particular game. It's not a necessity. And that's a hard narrative to interrupt when you're in it. Very you know, much guys, so. The way that Don Cherry promotes it, or Brian Burke, or other hyper-masculine projections of the game, mm-hmm. that's a possibility. It's really hard to say it could be otherwise in the face of what mm-hmm. you're um, saturating in, like are, you're marinating in it all the time, right? Mm-hmm. So I find that really interesting to stand up in a room full of men and say, do you guys think they'll be hitting in five years based on what we know about concussions now? Well, mm. the women play that, like, well, wait a minute. Women, you know, they, they don't hit, they have contact. If we're going to be like, and you can start to see the resistance mm-hmm. and the, of a familiar frame. Mm-hmm. But I think, can we continue to hit the way that men hit, given what we know about the bodies mm-hmm. and the injuries that we're mm-hmm. suffering? I think that uh, in regards to the hitting, and like if we look at the evolution of the game, and we go back to, like it wasn't that long ago I watched uh, the 87 Canada Cup final. It was, you know, Canada, Russia. And I, at the time, I remember watching I thought this is the best hockey I'm ever going to see. I went back and I watched it, and it was absolutely uh, horrible. It was, <laughs> it, it was slow. There was, you know, infractions everywhere that weren't called. The game just, yeah, it just didn't interest me. And then when I look at, like, just watching the... Uh, avalanche in the Oilers last night. The game is so fast and the players are so skilled. Yeah, contact is allowed and hitting is allowed and sure, you know, we see concussions that are serious, but the players are also bigger, faster, stronger than they've ever been. And they're playing on a rink that's still the same size as it was, you know, two generations, three generations of hockey players ago. So I think if we're going to look at the concussion narrative, if we really wanted to fix the problem, and it is a problem, I think we have to look at the space that the game is being played in for those guys, not changing the fundamental nature of the game, because mm-hmm. hockey is a contact sport. And I don't think anyone will disagree with me that hockey is at its best when there's emotion. Right? Like I've been to NHL games in February when it's 100 below outside and you're watching it and you can just tell that the players are just there. Right? But then nobody ever says that you know, in May when the playoffs are going on mm-hmm. because those games mean something. They play with a high-level emotion. So I think if we're going to el- eliminate or mitigate concussions, um, yeah, I mean, something other than the game needs to change because the game has changed, and I don't know if it necessarily gets enough credit for how different the game is than what it was. Like, when I grew up, it was great big players. or You know, being a smaller player, everyone was bigger than me. You got three seconds to finish your hit. If you got a chance to knock someone out, yeah, like, I mean, took it. Right? And as a player, I mean, concussion, whatever, you just got up and went to the bench and you shook out the cobweb and you're ready to go. There's only the most severe cases where... You're even sent to the dressing room. When I hear you speak, it's it's how resilient the narrative is. Mm-hmm. So many of the players that I interview would identify the world's changing. We understand the homophobia and heteronormative. They would articulate that. They would say that it's not as aggressive. It's, but mm-hmm. The game's changing. But at the end of the interview, they would all say, but, you know, if I need to do what I need to do, it's still, I got to answer it. Mm-hmm. So we can, there's a, there's a, Acknowledgement. They say, "Listen, we live in the world. We get it. We get that things are changing." But then there's the proverbial "but." The evolutionary process. It it doesn't happen overnight, right? Thank you for listening to the Research Connection podcast. You can visit our website for links to everything that was mentioned in the episode, and for more Research Connection content at www.brandonu.ca/bu-cares. Be sure to rate and subscribe so you can stay up to date with current research that impacts your community. Thank you.